Chapter 10 of Planet of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Planet of the Damned by Harry Harrison. Chapter 10 It's suicide, the taller guard grumbled. Mine, not yours, so don't worry about it, Brian barked at him. Your job is to remember your orders and keep them straight. Now, let's hear them again." The guard rolled his eyes up in silent rebellion and repeated in a toneless voice, "'We stay here in the car and keep the motor running while you go inside the stone pile there. We don't let anybody in the car and we try to keep them clear of the car, short of shooting them, that is. We don't come in no matter what happens or what it looks like, but wait for you here unless you call on the radio, in which case we come in with the automatics going and shoot the place up, and it doesn't matter who we hit. This will be done only as a last resort." "'See if you can't arrange that last resort thing,' the other guard said, patting the heavy blue barrel of his weapon. "'I meant that last resort,' Brian said angrily. "'If any guns go off without my permission you will pay for it, and pay with your necks. I want that clearly understood. You are here as a rear guard and a base for me to get back to. This is my operation and mine alone, unless I call you in. Understood?" He waited until all three men had nodded in agreement, then checked the charge on his gun. It was fully loaded. It would be foolish to go in unarmed, but he had to. One gun wouldn't save him. He put it aside. The button radio on his collar was working and had a strong enough signal to get through any number of walls. He took off his coat, threw open the door, and stepped out into the searing brilliance of the disson noon. There was only the desert silence, broken by the steady throb of the car's motor behind him. Stretching away to the horizon in every direction was the eternal desert of sand. The keep stood nearby, solitary, a massive pile of black rock. Brian plodded closer, watching for any motion from the walls. Nothing stirred. The high-walled, irregularly shaped construction sat in a ponderous silence. Brian was sweating now, only partially from the heat. He circled the thing, looking for a gate. There wasn't one at ground level. A slanting cleft in the stone could be climbed easily, but it seemed incredible that this might be the only entrance. A complete circuit proved that it was. Brian looked unhappily at the slanting and broken ramp, then cupped his hands and shouted loudly. "'I'm coming up! Your radio doesn't work any more! I'm bringing the message from Nyord that you have been waiting to hear!' This was a slight bending of the truth without fracturing it. There was no answer, just the hiss of wind-blown sand against the rock and the mutter of the car in the background. He started to climb. The rock underfoot was crumbling, and he had to watch where he put his feet. At the same time, he fought a constant impulse to look up, watching for anything falling from above. Nothing happened. When he reached the top of the wall, he was breathing hard, sweat moistened his body. There was still no one in sight. He stood on an unevenly shaped wall that appeared to circle the building. Instead of having a courtyard inside it, the wall was the outer face of the structure, the domed roof rising from it. At varying intervals dark openings gave access to the interior. 
When Brian looked down, the sand-car was just a dun-colored bump in the desert, already far behind him. Stooping, he went through the nearest door. There was still no one in sight. The room inside was something out of a madman's funhouse. It was higher than it was wide, irregular in shape, and more like a hallway than a room. At one end it merged into an incline that became a stairwell. At the other it ended in a hole that vanished in darkness below. Light of sorts filtered in through slots and holes drilled into the thick stone wall. Everything was built of the same crumble-textured but strong rock. Brian took the stairs. After a number of blind passages and wrong turns, he saw a stronger light ahead and went on. There was food, metal, even artifacts of the unusual distant design in the different rooms he passed through. Yet no people. The light ahead grew stronger, and the last passageway opened and swelled out until it led into the large central chamber. This was the heart of the strange structure. All the rooms, passageways, and halls existed just to give form to this gigantic chamber. The walls rose sharply, the room being circular in cross-section and growing narrower towards the top. It was a truncated cone, since there was no ceiling. A hot blue disk of sky cast light on the floor below. On the floor stood a knot of men who stared at Brian. Out of the corner of his eyes, and with the very periphery of his consciousness, he was aware of the rest of the room—barrels, stores, machinery, a radio-transceiver, various bundles and heaps that made no sense at first glance. There was no time to look closer. Every fraction of his attention was focused on the muffled and hooded men. He had found the enemy. Everything that had happened to him so far on Dis had been preparation for this moment. The attack in the desert, the escape, the dreadful heat of sun and sand—all this had tempered and prepared him. It had been nothing in itself. Now the battle would begin in earnest. None of this was conscious in his mind. His fighter's reflexes bent his shoulders, curved his hands before him as he walked softly in balance, ready to spring in any direction. Yet none of this was really necessary. All the danger so far was non-physical. When he did give conscious thought to the situation, he stopped, startled. What was wrong here? None of the men had moved or made a sound. How could he even know they were men? They were so muffled and wrapped in cloth that only their eyes were exposed. No doubt, however, existed in Brian's mind. In spite of muffled cloth and silence, he knew them for what they were. The eyes were empty of expression and unmoving, yet were filled with the same negative emptiness as those of a bird of prey. They could look on life, death, and the rending of flesh with the same lack of interest and compassion. All this Brian knew in an instant of time, without words being spoken. Between the time he lifted one foot and walked a step, he understood what he had to face. There could be no doubt, not to an empathetic. From the group of silent men poured a frost-white wave of unemotion. An empathetic shares what other men feel. He gets his knowledge of their reaction by sensing lightly their emotions, the surges of interest, hate, love, fear, desire, the sweep of large and small sensations that accompany all thought and action. 
the empathetic is always aware of this constant and silent surge, whether he makes the effort to understand it or not. He is like a man glancing across the open pages of a table full of books. He can see that the type, words, paragraphs, thoughts are there, even without focusing his attention to understand any of it. Then how does the man feel when he glances at the open books and sees only blank pages? The books are there, the words are not. He turned the pages of one, of the others, flipping the pages, searching for meaning. There is no meaning. All of the pages are blank. This was the way in which the Magter were blank, without emotions. There was a barely sensed surge and return that must have been neural impulses on a basic level, the automatic adjustments of nerve and muscle that keep an organism alive. Nothing more. Brian reached for other sensations, but there was nothing there to grasp. Either these men were without emotions, or they were able to block them from his detection. It was impossible to tell which. Very little time had passed while Brian made these discoveries. The knot of men still looked at him, silent and unmoving. They weren't expectant. Their attitude could not have been called one of interest. But he had come to them, and now they waited to find out why. Any questions or statements they spoke would be superfluous, so they didn't speak. The responsibility was his. I have come to talk with Lig Magti. Who is he? Brian didn't like the tiny sound his voice made in the immense room. One of the men gave a slight motion to draw attention to himself. None of the others moved. They still waited. I have a message for you. Brian said, speaking slowly to fill the silence of the room and the emptiness of his thoughts. This had to be handled right. But what was right? I'm from the Foundation in the city, as you undoubtedly know. I've been talking to the people of Nyord. They have a message for you. The silence grew longer. Brian had no intention of making this a monologue. He needed facts to operate, to form an opinion. Looking at the silent forms was telling him nothing. Time stretched taut, and finally Lig Magti spoke. The Nyorders are going to surrender. It was an impossibly strange sentence. Brian had never realized before how much of the content of speech was made up of emotion. If the man had given it a positive emphasis, perhaps said it with enthusiasm, it would have meant, Success! The enemy is going to surrender! This wasn't the meaning. With a rising inflection on the end, it would have been a question. Are they going to surrender? It was neither of these. The sentence carried no other message than that contained in the simplest meanings of the separate words. It had intellectual connotations, but these could only be gained from past knowledge, not from the sound of the words. There was only one message they were prepared to receive from Nyord. Therefore, Brian was bringing the message. If that was not the message Brian was bringing, the men here were not interested. This was the vital fact. If they were not interested, he could have no further value to them. Since he came from the enemy, he was the enemy. Therefore, he would be killed. Because this was vital to his existence, Brian took the time to follow the thought through. It made logical sense and logic was all he could depend on now. 
he could be talking to robots or alien creatures for all the human response he was receiving. You can't win this war. All you can do is hurry your own deaths." He said this with as much conviction as he could, realizing at the same time that it was wasted effort. No flicker of response stirred in the men before him. The Nyorders know you have the cobalt bombs, and they have detected your jump-space projector. They can't take any more chances. They have pushed the deadline closer by an entire day. There are one and a half days left before the bombs fall and you are all destroyed. Do you realize what that means?" "'Is that the message?' Ligmakti asked. "'Yes,' Brian said. Two things saved his life then. He had guessed what would happen as soon as they had his message, though he hadn't been sure. But even the suspicion had put him on his guard. This, combined with the reflexes of a winner of the twenties, was barely enough to enable him to survive. From frozen mobility, Lig Magti had catapulted into headlong attack. As he leaped forward, he drew a curved, double-edged blade from under his robes. It plunged unerringly through the spot where Brian's body had been an instant before. There had been no time to tense his muscles and jump, just the space of time to relax them and fall to one side. His reasoning mind joined the battle as he hit the floor. Lig Magti plunged by him, turning and bringing the knife down at the same time. Brian's foot lashed out and caught the other man's leg, sending him sprawling. They were both on their feet at the same instant, facing each other. Brian now had his hands clasped before him in the unarmed man's best defense against a knife, the two arms protecting the body, the two hands joined to beat aside the knife-arm from whichever direction it came. The Disson hunched low, flipped the knife quickly from hand to hand, then thrust it again at Brian's midriff. Only by the merest fractional margin did Brian evade the attack for the second time. Ligmagti fought with utter violence. Every action was as intense as possible, deadly and thorough. There could be only one end to this unequal contest if Brian stayed on the defensive. The man with the knife had to win. With the next charge, Brian changed tactics. He leaped inside the thrust, clutching for the knife-arm. A burning slice of pain cut across his arm, then his fingers clutched the tendoned wrist. They clamped down hard, grinding shut, compressing with the tightening intensity of a closing vice. It was all he could do to simply hold on. There was no science in it, just his greater strength from exercise and existence on a heavier planet. All of his strength went to his clutching hand, because he held his own life in that hand, forcing away the knife that wanted to terminate it forever. Nothing else mattered, neither the frightening force of the knees that thudded into his body nor the hooked fingers that reached for his eyes to tear them out. He protected his face as well as he could, while the nails tore furrows through his flesh and the cut on his arm bled freely. These were only minor things to be endured. His life depended on the grasp of the fingers of his right hand. There was a sudden immobility as Brian succeeded in clutching Lig Magti's other arm. It was a good grip, and he could hold the arm immobilized. They had reached stasis, standing knee to knee, their faces only a few inches apart. The muffling cloth had fallen from the Disson's face during the struggle, and empty, frigid eyes stared into Brian's. 
No flicker of emotion crossed the harsh planes of the other man's face. A great puckered white scar covered one cheek and pulled up a corner of the mouth in a cheerless grimace. It was false. There was still no expression here, even when the pain must be growing more intense. Brian was winning, if none of the watchers broke the impasse. His greater weight and strength counted now. The Disson would have to drop the knife before his arm was dislocated at the shoulder. He didn't do it. With sudden horror, Brian realized that he wasn't going to drop it, no matter what happened. A dull, hideous snap jerked through the Disson's body and the arm hung limp and dead. No expression crossed the man's face. The knife was still locked in the fingers of the paralyzed hand. With his other hand, Lig Magti reached across and started to pry the blade loose, ready to continue the battle one-handed. Brian raised his foot and kicked the knife free, sending it spinning across the room. Lig Magti made a fist of his good hand and crashed it into Brian's groin. He was still fighting, as if nothing had changed. Brian backed slowly away from the man. "'Stop it,' he said. "'You can't win now. It's impossible.' He called to the other men who were watching the unequal battle with expressionless immobility. No one answered him. With a terrible sinking sensation, Brian then realized what would happen and what he had to do. Lig Magti was as heedless of his own life as he was of the life of his planet. He would press the attack no matter what damage was done to him. Brian had an insane vision of him breaking the other man's arm, fracturing both his legs, and the limbless broken creature still coming forward, crawling, rolling, teeth bared, since they were the only remaining weapon. There was only one way to end it. Brian fainted, and the Lig Magti's arm moved clear of his body. The engulfing cloth was thin, and through it Brian could see the outlines of the Disson's abdomen and ribcage, the clear location of the great nerve ganglion. It was the death-blow of karate. Brian had never used it on a man. In practice he had broken heavy boards, splintering them instantly with the short, precise stroke. The stiffened hand moved forward in a sudden surge, all the weight and energy of his body concentrated in his joined fingertips, plunging deep into the other's flesh. Killing, not by accident or in sudden anger, killing because this was the only way the battle could possibly end. Like a ruined tower of flesh, the Disson crumpled and fell. Dripping blood, exhausted, Brian stood over the body of Lig Magti and stared at the dead man's allies. Death filled the room. End of chapter 10